Be glorified. 
Welcome to the 2021 Revelation series. This is an outreach of XL Church in IOM America, and we're glad to have you join us today. Our Revelation series is a verse-by-verse study on the book of Revelation. We're in the process of unfolding the power of prophecy, keeping in mind that eschatology is the study of the end times. Today's study is number 52 in our series. It's titled The Lamb and Mount Zion. Specifically, we will be speaking on the names on the foreheads of the 144,000 pure bloodline Jews. Let's review our scriptures for today. This is found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the one hundred and forty-four thousand who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits of God and the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Let's talk about John turning to face the living God directly. What a moment for John. His eyes and attention turned away from the beast's ugly image and onto the one of the most beautiful moments of eternity. What a breath of fresh air this must have been after writing about so much pain and suffering. Here he stands gazing into the faces of the most faithful servants of all eternity, the redeemed 144,000. All are standing on Mount Sion, or Zion, gazing into the face of the Lamb. The air? Well, it's filled with music orchestrated by the finger of God. Wow, talk about a moment. Zion is the southern hill in the city of our present Jerusalem. At one time, this name was given to the whole city. Jerusalem was and will again be the seat of the divine worship of all the earth and the mercy seat for the entire universe. The Orthodox Jews know it to be an emblem of heaven the dwelling place of the living God. The scene of this part of John's vision is laid in heaven. This is a true and honorable view of the ultimate triumph of the redeemed. 
Special recognition, I might add, of the 144,000 Jews who will have just sustained the tribulation. I am fairly certain that all of us who were chosen by Christ through the centuries will be standing there enjoying this moment with all of heaven. But this scene needs to be kept in its most holy place. Those in this special group are most likely the same individuals John wrote about in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. The representation is made for the same purpose, to reveal that God keeps his promise of sustaining the church, the bride of his son in a trial, with certainty, I might add, of showing its present and future glory. Let's take a moment and talk about God's name and his number. Having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads is what our passage says. God is showing the fact that they are his. You can read more about that in Revelation 7, 3 and chapter 13, verse 16. He keeps his promise that came with the seal a seal that no man or beast has ever been able to break. It would take a being much more powerful than God to break the seal of God. That's how seals work. Can you imagine this moment? They had, or should I say, will have the same name of God engraved into their foreheads as living proof of God's promise. The glory of this moment reveals the horridness of the seven-year tribulation. Words could never describe or warn people what it will be like. We know from scriptures that the saints' blood will run through the streets like water being spilled from a cup. Any righteousness known to the memories of those alive could be found according to Psalms 4.6. Even Luke tells us this. Luke chapter 18 verse 8 says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Good question. While this celebration is going on, the beast is proudly running around the earth, shouting and proclaiming himself as God. The people are eating it all up. And they're shouting out, finally, the Christians are dead and gone. Well, there's a surprise right around the corner for them. Satan will be completely immersed in his dictatorship with all of the saints gone, both politically and religiously. But please keep in mind, when Jesus arrives in his second coming, he will not find any faith on earth, except for the 144,000 pure bloodline Jews. Let's talk about these seven glorious factors that we find in our passage today. Number one, the 144,000 sealed children of God in the bridal members of Christ will all be together. Not one member mentioned in prophecy will be missing. 
Number two, God's final speech and testimony to the earth. That is, of course, the everlasting gospel. Three, the great and final announcement of Babylon has fallen for the last time. The system of government and religious ideations that come with Babylon have been plaguing the earth since the Tower of Babel. Number four, God's revealing of the horrid doom and condemnation of the beast, his worshippers, and the demons that carried out his business. Number five is the blessing of the dead, who died in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is called the Blessed Proclamation. Number six is the Great Harvest. This harvest will be announced as complete. Finally, number seven, the absolute fullness of God's wrath and vengeance will be poured out at this time. Chapter 14 is packed with a punch in every way. The message and the passage opens the window just enough to give us struggling bridal members a breath of fresh air. We are given a glimpse of our shared glory, the wrath being poured on the enemy, and the future of our eternal hope is being revealed. It should remind us of the day coming when we will no longer have to worry about doing the things that we hate. Let's take a look at Paul's warning to the indwelt believers regarding our flesh. It says in Romans seven fourteen through 24, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There's a lot packed into that passage. Paul is addressing the issue of the flesh. True indwell believers are not their flesh. Paul is making this very clear to us. This passage speaks of God's children no longer struggling with doing the very things they hate. What a day that will be. 
Equally as significant is the group of the 144,000 men who will survive the second half, the worst half, of the Great Tribulation, without becoming defiled. This is nothing short of miraculous. It will be like the 144,000 coming out of the lion's den, all at the same time. How remarkable will that be? To have walked through the most deceptive and luring years of mankind without becoming stained is simply amazing. The second half of the tribulation will be Satan's final and best shot. He will give it his all and still will fail. Satan and his followers will be so horrid, their guilt chases them into the hills to escape the wrath of God. Doesn't matter, though. Once they find their little hole in the rock, they end up begging to have the mountains fall in upon them. Here's what it says in Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hide in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Let's take a look at all those who say there is no God. It always amazes me how the very people who cry out, There is no God, usually end up confessing with their reactions, They indeed do believe in God. This is revealed literally in the passage I just read to you. We truly are stupid people without God. It says more about that in Psalms 94, 8, in particular Jeremiah 4, 22, and it says this, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. That's Jeremiah 4.22, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Well, by the dawn of this passage, the completion of the first six seals will have been accomplished. The smell of death will be in the air and be smelled from every corner of the earth. We're talking millions of people slaughtered year after year. Hatred will be running through the streets like blood flowing from the slaughterhouse. Natural disasters will be stacked in repetition at such a rate. The earth itself will not be able to take a deep breath. The demon's looks will be seen on every face, and their sounds will be rolling off every tongue. The number of released demons most of which are presently bound, will be too numerous to count, according to Revelation 9, 1-11. through This truly will be hell on earth. But wait, there's more. We still have the seven bowls of wrath or judgment. Before we get into the heated battle 
that comes with these bowls of wrath. Let's review some of the basic facts about the 144,000. These significant believers are considered blameless before God. One of the singular and most significant things about these witnesses is the song they are given the privilege to sing. No one can sing this song except for the 144,000, not even the Bride of Christ. It will be a song of victory after the conflict with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. A song that has not ever before been sung by any eternal being or earthly person. Never has such a conflict been fought, nor has any believer survived a battle such as this, without defiling themselves or the throne of God. This truly will be a significant moment. Remember that many Bible scholars believe these 144,000 Jews, or should we say evangelists, do not hold the same position as the body of Christ. Although we cannot be sure of this, we do know that they carry a very significant privilege, honor, and presence before the living God. Also keep in mind that there will not be anyone else redeemed during Satan's temporary reign. There will not be other Jews or Gentiles during this time that will be saved This time is saved for the redemption of the 144,000 pure bloodline Jews. Each of them will certainly die as martyrs. Some may be able to see the Christ returning on Mount Zion. We're not sure exactly when the 144,000 pure bloodline Jews are going to be able to see the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in studying the prophecies, we can clearly see it is most likely at the end of the second half of Satan's great tribulation. Once God gathers his first fruit, he will send his son like a roaring lion. Of course, we know him to be the Lion of Judah, This won't be a pleasant time for the people that are on the earth, that's for certain. Now that the first fruit is safe and sound at home, the unfolding of God's judgment is about to occur. The Heavenly Father is about to have an attitude change. By this point in time, the Father will have no reason to be easy on the earth or the earth dwellers. He, God, is about to take back all that is his, everything. The tide is about to turn for the worse, for Satan and his little trio, and anyone who decided to follow him. John is recording Jesus standing on Mount Zion, simply reveals to us that we have arrived at a significant moment in God's continuous point in history. Remember what David sang and was recorded in the Psalms? Let's take a look at David's revelation. This is found in Psalms chapter 2 verses 6 through 9. And it says this, 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God revealed events to David that weren't scheduled to occur for thousands of years. Let's take a look at the top seven. God is about to install a king, king of kings. Number two, this will be done on the most holy mountain on earth, Mount Zion. Number three, this statement, much like John's, was a decree of God, which results in God's judgment. Number four, the Father's decree says, You, Jesus, are my son. Number five, he goes on to announce, Today I have begotten, produced as evidence, you, Jesus. Number six, God gives his son his inheritance, saying, I will surely give the nations your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Finally, number seven, God grants his son permission to chastise those who hurt his bride. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is a habit that God had throughout the Old Testament. He used people like David to reveal the final outcome stated in the book of Revelation. This is the moment to which our passage is referring. In Hebrew tradition and culture, it is a great honor for a son, the firstborn son, to waste the enemy that has come against his father's hand. We find this in David's battle with Goliath, Goliath being this massive enemy, large in size and very powerful. And with one small little stone, David brought him unto his death. That is a parallel that is being given to us by God, revealing our passage of what the Lion of Judah is going to do with Satan himself. This is what you are seeing revealed here. We live in a world today where young men do not only fight their father's battles, but they use their swords to cut them down, according to Matthew 13, 12. A culture where children are rising up to kill their fathers. A culture where the young men do not honor authority anymore. These are all pre-signs to what is coming. This anti-authority attitude that is plaguing our culture today is a perfect setup for Satan. God will deal with it. And he will deal with all those who have lost the respect of the ancient fathers. And how God has carefully laid out the book of Revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation. These are strange times for sure, 
but it doesn't change God's truth and the cultural guidelines in which he gave us to live. In conclusion, we need to talk about that God is not a pacifist. For all those who believe that Jesus was a pacifist, meaning anti-war, this next phase of prophecy will not only shock some, but might shake the foundation of their emergent beliefs. God has required Jesus to be silent and restrained until the appointed time. In our passage today, that appointed time has come. Once that time arrives, which will show up right around Revelation chapter 16, we will not see a peaceful pacifist that generally is penned, scribed, or painted as an overly feminized half-male. He will be returning in full living color, which, by the way, most postmodern Christians will not expect. Revelation 2.18 says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze. Again in Revelation 14.10 it says, He who will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Not one of us can imagine the full wrath of Jesus, not even Jesus. He has not been granted the hour yet for this battle, which we call Armageddon, But he will. He is currently being equipped. He is also preparing a house for his bride. I can't tell you this, though. He isn't sitting around in heaven eating bonbons. That's for certain. We hope that you join us in our next message, number 53, specifically talking about the Lamb and Mount Zion. That'll be out of Revelation 14, verses 6 through 7. Earlier, we talked about the Trinity of the Gospel, the Gospel of Grace, the Gospel of the Kingdom, and now the Eternal Gospel. They all derive from the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but each has a significant message to preach, and each has a particular place in the timeline of God the Father to shout out. In verse 6 of the passage we will be talking about in our next message, we find an angel flying in mid-heaven. The eternal gospel is on his lips, ready to preach unto all those who still dwell on the earth. Each and every nation, race, language, and people will hear this message. This particular gospel is assigned to be preached at the end of the Great Tribulation, immediately preceding the judgment of the earth's nations and all of its people. And at that time there will be so much unrest on the earth, fear will dominate every heart and mind of every human 
demon in the triune of Satan. More about this in our next message. We thank you for joining us today. It has been a pleasure being able to share this series with you. Until next time.